Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck and Jerry's here, too, and this is Stuff You Should Know, a little overlooked historical figure edition. Yeah, boy, God, this guy could, you could do uh, a tin-parter on his life. Easily. I mean, it's it's nuts. So we're talking about a man named uh, Eugène-Francois Viroc. Um, he is known as the father of criminology. Yeah. Pretty much on the nose. That's a really good title for him. Yeah, for um, good reason. He's also an inspiration for plenty of um, detective, first early detective stories. Ooh. He was at one time as famous as Napoleon in France and in Europe in general. He was incredibly yeah. famous, incredibly wealthy. And it was because he dedicated himself as a public servant to the city of Paris um, to basically wipe out crime as best he could at a time when Paris was more overrun with crime than maybe it ever has been in its history. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a time where the, uh, the army was very busy. Mm-hmm. I guess is the the best way to say it. Mm-hmm. And like the army took up a lot of the men who might normally be cops and they were preoccupied more with warring than with just taking care of regular police work. And uh, Vito stepped up in a big way. And like I said, like I had to stop researching because I was like, we can't do a 12 hour podcast on this guy. Right. We? No, but you can definitely go down a rabbit hole with them. And one of the reasons why is because depending on the source you you consult, he was either a total scumbag scoundrel or genuinely unjustly slandered. I lean toward the second one or closer to the second one. Obviously, no one's perfect. But I do think that uh, the stuff that is really questionable or, or makes him into a questionable person or character, I think is remnants of his political rivals smearing his name so well that it still is around today. Here's what I think is that he was, and you, as you'll see, started off as a scoundrel and a criminal, uh, later uh, changed his tune because I think it was beneficial for him to not be in prison all the time. Hmm. And I think he tried to do the right thing, but also like a little bit of that 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 uh, scoundrel lived within him, but he also had people that had it out for him. I think he's a complex guy. Yeah. I don't think he did a one eighty and was like, "And now I am pure." Uh, I think he, I think he, you know, did what was best for him usually, but also wanted to put criminals behind bars and make a few bucks while he did it. So I, I, I have a, a counterpoint to that, but we'll, I'll, I'll bring it up when we get to that part. But we should tell everybody one of the reasons Vidoc is famous if you have heard of him, is because not only was he the father of criminology, he started out as a genuine bona fide criminal who was serving time in prison, would escape prison, and then one day he basically switched sides from an outsider's standpoint um, and yeah. became like the the top cop in all of France while he was serving. Yeah, a good way to stay out of jail. <laughs> For sure. Well, let's start. <laughs> let's start with his early life, right? Because... He was unquestionably a troublemaker, a hothead, and um, 
just a handful, you could definitely say his parents actually let him get arrested when they stole from him once. Yeah, I mean, you would classify him as a juvenile delinquent uh, today, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't because he was uh, some, you know, poor kid from the the poor streets who had to steal to survive. Mm -hmm. His parents did pretty well. They had a successful bakery uh, in, uh, how do you pronounce that, Arras? I think so, yeah. A-R-R-A-S. And it seemed rather middle class, but like you said, he, he stole from his parents. He was... He was a scoundrel. He he uh, pickpocketed. He was uh, from very early on seemed like he was a bit of a ladies' man, and he would uh, you know this was sort of his early life until he ran away literally to join the circus. <laughs> right, uh, like people actually did that, uh, and he did that for a few months until he didn't like the work. Uh, then he would eventually work for a Punch and Judy street show, which is if you guys are, uh, don't know who Punch and Judy were, they were they were puppets, right? Yes, they were. um, Punch was a wife battering puppet and Judy was the abused wife. They got into like hysterical, right? Yeah, really violent (laughs) fights all the time. But it was puppets and kids thought it was hilarious. And he worked for that show and he had to, um, I guess he got fired in a way. I think so. I think as a 15 year old, he's had some kind of a a tryst with the wife of, uh, of the guy who was running the thing. Yes. So Not, not very specific. It says that they were embracing, so who knows what that means. Yeah, but it definitely goes to underscore a lot of things about him. He was very much into the ladies. He didn't mind if it was someone else's lady, if you were someone else's lady. And um, he was willing to put himself in great danger uh, and at great personal risk to satisfy his own wants, needs, desires. (laughs) That's a very nice way to say it. So he moved back home. He went back to Arras, Arras, um, and... His, I don't know if we said his dad was a baker, um, and his parents were just totally normal, fine parents. But again, they, they basically, when he was caught stealing from them when he was 13, they said, okay, you're going to jail. When mm-hmm. he moved back home after the circus and the Punch and Judy show, um, he wasn't even 16 yet. And um, they said, all right, you're going to join the army, whether you like it or not. They shipped him off to the army while he was 15. That's how bad a kid he was. Yeah, I think he was drinking, getting in fights and womanizing. And, you know, he's just one of those kids. They'd probably just say today that he was, uh, I don't know, what would you call it? A hothead? Yeah, teenage hothead. Yeah. He like, like to steal things sometimes. <laughs> right, and embrace other people's wives. Exactly. So uh, he did serve in the Army, apparently. He was in battle a few times because this was uh, post, um, post-French Revolution. And I think he may have been in the army when Napoleon first took power. At the very least, France was on all sorts of adventures. Like you said, it had drained them, their uh, population of potential police, um, police people, policemen. Um, and so he fought in a few battles. He definitely saw some action and he was fine. But I think probably the biggest takeaway was that he learned how to fence. He became a very great fencer. And that served him well because he was also known to get into duels with people. And he actually had to desert the army because he was coming up on charges because he challenged a a sergeant to a duel. The sergeant refused him and he smacked the sergeant around. And that is not something you do in any army at any period of time. And so he took off and was now a desertee from the army. And this is when his actual like criminal life really began. Everything else was petty, intemperate, that kind of thing. This is like, okay, I'm a deserter from the army. I need to support myself somehow. I guess I have to turn to a life of crime. Yeah, he actually deserted a few times, so I don't think he was super popular among his peers there. Sure. Uh, He had a habit for just sort of not being there all of a sudden when they called roll call. Mm -hmm. Uh, But eventually, when he finally left for good, he joined up with uh, what was called the rolling army. Uh, You want to do the French there? You're a French guy. Uh, it was the Armée Roulante. Okay, the Armée Roulante, which was everything I saw about this was that it was a, a side army. I think it was a couple of thousand men, mm-hmm. and that they uh, they sort of just did what they wanted. They wore fake uniforms. They plundered the countryside. They gave themselves fake orders. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what real army work they did. I'm sure they did, right? I don't think so. I think or was they, it all just a thing to like 
I think they Plunder were, and pillage? Yes, that's what. Okay. That's my take. I don't think they were officially sanctioned at all. Well, no, they weren't officially sanctioned, but I just, I figured they were, uh, I, I thought that the real army might have used them at times. I don't know. I don't know enough about it. It's possible. I mean, you got a couple thousand people with guns ready to fight. Why not? Yeah. Well, I know they wore fake uniforms and he he made up a, a rank for himself and took a uh, alias. He was Lieutenant Rousseau and eventually even made himself captain. I don't know why he didn't start off as captain as long as he's making things up. Yeah. He kind of sold himself short there, didn't he? <laughs> well, he became captain eventually. So he um, he ended up in Paris eventually after he left the Armée Roulant. And um, this is around 1795. The French Revolution had had, um, had been successful. But there's something to understand about it. Like, one of the reasons Paris was so overrun with crime was not just that there was a lack of potential candidates for the police. Mm-hmm. There was also like revel- the threat of revolution and regime change was constant during these yeah. decades. It wasn't like the French Revolution happened and it was over. Yeah, it was a mess. It was a mess. First, Napoleon comes along and is like, hey, I'll take over from here. I'm now emperor. He he ran uh, France for a really long time, for well, a decade or something like that. Then he was deposed, and a new king was installed. A new king was installed after that. That king was disp- deposed, and a new citizen king was put into place. And then around that time, finally, um, our our protagonist dies. But like throughout all this time, like there are there's a lot of tension and conflict mm-hmm. in the country, and because everybody was preoccupied with that stuff. Crime was allowed to flourish. It was a really dangerous, lawless time, particularly in Paris, because a lot of people were also coming to Paris looking for opportunity and that kind of thing. And so um, it was a just just put that in your in your pipe and hold it in your hat for later, because that's 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 this is the backdrop that that um, that he shows up in Paris against. That's right. So he ends up in Paris during this very tumultuous time. Uh, great time to be a criminal in Paris. Sure. You know, very, uh, I don't know about easy to get away with stuff, but, you know, you could be a pretty successful criminal at the time. And that's what he did. Uh, it's sort of through his 20s and into his 30s, he was in and out of prison, kind of off and on because of uh, various schemes. It, it was never like, uh, I'm not going to say it was victimless, but it was never like violent crimes. It seems like he was like a really good, really good at uh, forging documents and things like that. And uh, all of his schemes seem to be uh, kind of like on the more intelligent side. Does yeah, that make sense? he was definitely intelligent. Yes. Yeah. So it's not like he was walking up and bonking someone on the head and stealing their purse. Right. Um, he graduated to more elaborate kind of, uh, you know, forgeries and things like that. Yeah. And he also um, he was a criminal with a heart. He landed in this one prison. Um, oh, what is it called? Bagno, I believe. It, oh, was that where he the 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 bread guy was? Yes. Yeah, so, so okay. th- this is a really good example of that. He, um, yeah, he was finally caught and sentenced for I think just three months in prison, just three months. But while there, he was so moved by a guy who had been given six years for stealing grain to feed mm-hmm. his family who were starving. He's the bread guy, by the way. The bread guy, right. If <laughs> People are confused. So he was so moved by that and, and thought that it was so unjust that he'd been given six years. He forged documents that um, that were, that he signed as like the head of, I think, the prison or the police, uh, saying like this man is to be released. His, his, yeah. his sentence has been commuted. And the guy made it made made off. Like he, he was released. Um, and I think it took a few months for the whole thing to finally be found out. But I think Vidoc was in, in jail at the time when they did find out. And they gave him eight years for that, for forging yeah. papers that released a man who had been given six years for stealing grain. Yeah. So this time he went to uh, a hard labor prison. Like you said, it was called a, uh, I don't know how it's pronounced. I think they started in Italy. Uh, under a different name, but uh, B-A-G-N-O. The Bagno. <laughs> the Bagno. Like, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, I looked into these, the, the movie Papillon, mm-hmm. uh, the island prison they were on, that was one. And I think it was just like a, a very tough, it was like the toughest of the tough prisons. Hard labor, um, usually in uh, shackles, uh, very hard to escape from. 
yet he did manage to escape even from here. Uh, and I think he, he escaped as a sailor and was caught and put back and then escaped again, uh, posing as a nun. Uh, so he, as you will see later, he was in fact a master of disguise, mm-hmm. uh, was very good at it. And if he was able to pass himself off as uh, a nun, clearly pretty good at it. Yeah. And it's really something that he escaped not just once, but twice from a galley prison because they, they were originally before they moved them onto land, they were ships, giant ships with tons of oars sticking out of them. And you would be sentenced to hard labor rowing those oars day in and day out. It was a really rough place to to spend eight years. And it would also be a really difficult place to escape from. But he did twice. So he started to get a reputation as someone who no prison could hold, uh, in, in addition to being a master of disguise. And when you start kind of doing stuff like that, your your name gets around and you start to sure. become a bit of a legend among not just the the, the um, criminals, but also like law enforcement as well. Mm-hmm. So his, his star is starting to rise. And I think <laughs> as we reach this point, Chuck, it's time for a um, message break. What do you think? As we reach this point, I agree. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so where we left off, uh, Vidoc has escaped prison a couple of times. He was a juvenile delinquent. He was a, a delinquent into his 20s and into his 30s, through his 20s and into his 30s, and then finally ends up back in Paris. Uh, he was trying to get pulled into the criminal underworld again uh, because he was well-known, mm-hmm. and he was kind of in a bad spot because if he said no, he would get blackmailed uh, by these low lowlifes and threatened to turn him in because he was a fugitive at this point still. Right. So finally, he was like, all right, uh, what am I doing with my life? All this on-the-run stuff, on the lamb, in disguise, 
as a nun. This is for the birds. Uh, in 1809, he said, I'm going to go to the cops and I'm going to say, I would like to turn myself in and make myself, well, sort of turn myself in. What he really wanted to do was turn into a police informant and get out of jail. And they said, hey, great idea, but you're going to do that for at least a little while in jail. Right. That is, I mean, that sounds like, oh, that's cool. That was an incredibly dangerous position to put himself in for two straight years. It still is. He was an informant. Sure. He was a, an informant, a volunteer informant for the police, and he would he would inform on anybody. And so I was saying earlier that I would bring up a counterpoint to the idea that it was just completely self-serving. From what I saw, another explanation is that he never actually thought of himself as a criminal. He yeah. thought of himself as an outlaw by circumstance. Like he had made a lot of bad decisions. He knew that. And that had made him run afoul of the law. But he wasn't a criminal. Like that's not how he wanted to support himself. He didn't have a, the heart of a criminal. Um, and so this was a way to to basically say, I, I don't want to be a criminal anymore. I don't want to be associated with these people. I want to change sides. And this is how I'm going to try to do it. Or another way to look at it is um, that he... He was he was he finally grew up essentially and realized like okay this is this is not okay I need to I need to change things and I've worked myself into such a deep hole this is the alternative to just going like okay I'm going to become a criminal from now on those were his choices that's how deep the holy dug was and the thing is Chuck no matter how you interpret it whether it was a selfish act whether it was you know you know his destiny whatever that shows a remarkable amount of initiative to do that. Like he said, I'm not going to be a criminal. I'm not going to turn a life of crime. I'm going to basically put myself in the hands of cops who hate me um, and see if they will have me as, as one of their own. Yeah. I, I think he probably grew up. I don't know that I buy that. If he had come from nothing, I could buy that, but he came from a pretty good, he, he wasn't forced into committing crimes to survive. No, but I think that's uh, why he didn't see himself as a criminal, because he had made choices or whatever. He wasn't a, a criminal. I, he just didn't see himself like that from what I saw. So he made choices to commit crimes, but didn't see himself as a criminal? Yes. Okay, yes. He <laughs> made <for> choices <laughs> that, were, that, that were criminal, but he wasn't making choices like to do crime. Like, that wasn't his, his aim was for crime. He was just making bad decisions that were criminal. And that made him a criminal in the eyes of society. I'm not saying like it was, it didn't make him a criminal. He just didn't think of himself as a criminal. To him, there was a differentiation between people who commit crimes and criminals. He did not think very highly of criminals, like career criminals, somebody who would slit your throat for like your, your wallet or something like that. that like Elvis him, was a drug addict, but Elvis was on pills and he looked down on real drug addicts that were taking hard drugs like heroin. It's funny you bring that up because I think of this same, him turning over himself to the police to say, hey, I want to inform for you, as very similar to Elvis showing up at the White House and volunteering to be an undercover narc agent for um, Nixon. Oh, totally. And I think they're both pretty hypocritical. <laughs> for sure. So, so for sure. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't want to give the impression that I'm just like an apologist for Vidoc. I, I, I just think that there is an alternative explanation. And one of them is that he didn't see himself as a criminal, even though he was a criminal. I'll, I, oh, I, I, I totally I, agree. I, I totally believe that. Like, uh, they're nothing but innocent people in prison if you ask them. <laughs> okay. You know? Sure. Well, uh, that was, uh, what's it called? Shawshank. Oh, is that who that was? Yeah, I remember that great scene when they were at lunch or whatever, when they were all saying like, how like, hey, none of us did it. Like, no one in here did any of the crimes that we're in here for. Mm -hmm. It's pretty funny. Uh, anyway, uh, so he, for two years, worked in that prison. Like you said, just uh, uh, what he would do was pass on information to his girlfriend uh, who would get it to the police chief of Paris. And it was going really well, uh, apparently so well that at some point he um, helped Napoleon's Empress Josephine's uh, catch the person who stole her em uh, emerald necklace. And so he was on Napoleon's radar, mm -hmm. at least for a moment. I'm not sure how much Napoleon hung on to that. But it, it was a uh, sort of a feather in his cap as an informant, for sure. For sure. And that police chief was named Jean Henry, or Henry. Not with an I, but a Y. So I'm not sure how it's pronounced exactly. But he was... Um, 
he was finally smitten after two years um, with with Vidoc. He was all in for this guy. So he said, okay, we're going to let you out, but this is an unofficial release. Like you're actually not going to get pardoned or released on paper Mm -hmm. because we need you as a a police informant, what they used to call thief takers. They were kind of like the predecessors to bounty hunters where anybody could go catch thieves and bring them in for money. He was an undercover version of that. And that's new, brand new. They did not have undercover police at the time. So Vidoc has basically carved out a, a, a totally unique, peculiar place for himself in the Paris police. And it's largely because um, Jean-Henri uh, believes in him and is, is sees also the value in him going back into the underworld and informing on them, not just from jail, but like from the actual outside crime world. And Jean-Henri also said, stay away from my wife. Yeah, exactly. I better not find you embracing her. <laughs> uh, so as a, uh, a a CI is what you would call it today, I guess, he was doing his thing. Uh, he knew the people very well. Uh, he knew his old haunts. Um, he was not um, unwilling to just hand over his uh, friends and former sort of um, cohorts in the thievery world uh, in the underworld. He would he would do that at a moment's notice. Um, Dave uh, Ruse helped us out with this. He found one case where he was actually in on a robbery, helped plan it, uh, helped execute the robbery. And then when the cops come, he pretended like he had been shot uh, so he could, you know, get out of the whole thing. Well, no, so that the 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 robbers who were there wouldn't know that he was a police informant. They would think That's what that I mean. he was. Yeah. So, and by the way, the that, that burglar, uh, the robber, St. Germain, was a really wanted man. He was also a murderer. Um, and it was actually a pretty interesting, um, I guess, project that he undertook and, and got the guy. Um, but, and we didn't say also, the reason he was able to go back into the um, underworld again was because the police staged an escape. Like they allowed him to escape to make it look like he'd broken out of prison, not that they'd released him so that he would seem like he, it was Vidoc who'd broken out of prison again. And now he was back in the Paris underworld. That's right. So this underworld at the time was um, it was a Paris where they uh, policed in a, in a way that wasn't tenable. They were uh, confined to districts. And if you were in a district, you couldn't go to another district to investigate. You had to stick to your district. Uh, the criminals at the time knew this, they were savvy. And so they would commit crimes, uh, not near where they lived, which made it a lot easier to get away with stuff. Mm-hmm. And so Vidoc comes in and says, Hey, I was one of these guys. You, you're, you guys are dumb and how you're doing things because all you have to do is go on the other side of Paris to commit a crime. And you're probably going to get away with it unless you're caught red handed. And so what you guys should do is. Uh, continue to allow me to work undercover. I know it's not something you've ever done because you like to wear these ridiculous uniforms that identify you from a mile away. And get rid of these districts and allow cops to investigate wherever they need in order to solve a crime. And they said, okay. Uh, In 1812, uh, they made Vidoc chief of the security brigade. In French, it is the what? Brigade de la Sûreté. Sûreté. (laughs) Fantastic. And they said, go hire some men. And he said, all right, I'm going to go hire eight uh, former criminals, uh, ex-cons that I used to know. These are the best of the worst. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like the Dirty Dozen. He's like, except that was the Dirty Eight. It was the Dirty Ocho. And they said, come with me and we're all going to be this undercover agent security brigade. and We're going to clean up Paris. Yeah. And I think that definitely undermines the idea that he had no loyalty whatsoever to people he'd met as a criminal in Paris. he just didn't have loyalty to the actual real criminals. He he distinguished the difference between people who commit crimes and actual criminals. And so he was he accused of disloyalty. Yeah, I mean, we said earlier that he had no loyalty whatsoever to the Paris criminal community. Oh, I don't think so. I think he turned in people he thought should be turned in, right. and Was loyal to his friends. So these are the people that he picked, and yes, it's very um, uh, unorthodox. Uh, And I think if Paris hadn't been overrun with crime, he never would have been able to put together a a Paris-wide undercover police force made up of ex-convicts. It even sounds nuts today in 2023. 
I can't imagine what it sounded like back in 1812. Yeah. Um, but his whole premise was, if you send somebody who's a cop, give me a great cop who could do undercover work, mm-hmm. he'll get sniffed out immediately and they will murder him. He will die. You can't have people who don't come from this uh, do this kind of work. Like that's, it was very dangerous undercover work. And so that's the main reason why he chose these ex-cons. But I also get the impression too, is that part of it was to to just kind of demonstrate his point that that just because somebody had done time and been convicted of a crime doesn't mean they could never be trustworthy again. I think you misspoke. I think you meant sniffed off the case, right? <laughs> That's right. Okay. Man, how could I miss that one? Uh, do we break now or do we go for a little bit longer? Um, I think we should talk a little bit more about the security brigade. Okay. Um, so uh, started in 1812, like you said, it turned out to be a really big success. Mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon, just a year later, signed a decree that said the security brigade is a state police force now. And you can have as up to 28 men is what they grew to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think through four or five years into it, they uh, and of course, some of this stuff is we should say Vidoc would write a lot about his uh, in his memoirs and stuff. Mm-hmm. He, he was not shy about tooting his own horn, let's say. Uh, and he's one of those guys where, like, if you read his memoir there, you know, some of it could be boasting. Some of it could be stretching the truth a little. But we do know that they were super successful. Like, no one is doubting that. Uh, but he uh, touted 15 murders in, in just one year, uh, 15 murders, 341 thieves, 38 uh, receivers of stolen goods, 14 escaped convicts, 43 parole violations, 46 forgers, swindlers, con men, 229 vagabonds, and suspicious types. So they are, they're kicking butt and taking names in Paris. Yeah, and make a note of this for later uh, and put it in your pipe and your hat. Um, yes. That this, this is a group of criminals who are showing up the regular police. Yeah. And the regular police are not really fans of being shown up in the public. Like the public was was reading all about this stuff. And, and yeah, they were getting famous for it. Very much so. And um, they were pulling in like the big whales while the police were chasing down, you know, um, pickpockets and stuff like that. Yeah. So, Oliver Twist. So there was a definite rivalry. Oh, sure. Yeah. He was a pickpocket, right? No, I don't think so. I, are I mean, you thinking he... of Annie? Annie was a pickpocket. No. <laughs> Oh, I've already misspoken on Oliver Twist and Annie before, so I'm not going to do it again. Forget everything I said, everybody. Don't write in. So, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. We we know how to make the division symbol on a keyboard. Exactly. Now we do. (laughs) So um, he, uh, what was I saying, Chuck? Uh, You were saying that he was landing the whales. Yes. So there was a lot of rivalry and disdain for the security brigade from the regular police. Just remember that. They didn't like him. They did not. Uh, all right. So uh, a few things, uh, you know, Dave found some great anecdotes from the security brigade. Uh, we already know that he knew a lot about the crime world and these criminals. And he was uh, apparently there was this one story where like he would know their methods, like specific people in their methods. And there was one story about uh, this robbery that they found where a thief had cut around a lock. And he was like, I know who did that. Like, I know that work. That is Fossard. And in the movie version, they said, that can't be Fossard. Fossard is in prison. And someone steps up and said, Fossard escaped from prison one week ago. And Vidoc says, then it is him. That's awesome. I f- End scene. I feel like the um, the guy who stepped up to inform everybody that he escaped from prison was Agador Spartacus from The Birdcage. Probably. I never saw that movie. <gasps> really? I'm excited for you, Chuck. It's you, one of my big holes. You need to fill that hole, and you'll do it over and over again. You'll keep filling that hole over and over again because it's such a this great movie. Just got dirty. And you can okay. just watch it so many times. Uh, and I, uh, also, don't email about end scene. We've already been over that before. It's just a joke. I meant end scene. End scene. Uh, what else? So it was a, an envelope, a scrap of envelope with a half of an address, and supposedly Vidoc was able to... Um, uh, make out the full address because he knew about all the criminal hangouts. Like this is where it must be. Mm-hmm. That was a, that kind of thing. I mean, that's just like 
Who else is going to be able to do that? Nobody. Vidoc. Uh, he also, um, he was not shy about, you know, going out guns blazing. They got a tip that a stagecoach was going to get knocked over in the forest outside of Paris. So they got on the stagecoach undercover. And when yeah. the bandits inevitably showed up and stopped the stagecoach, they got out and started just shooting. And it got rooting tooting really fast. <laughs> uh, now should we take a break? Yeah. I think we've right, established well- that the security brigade was pretty successful. They were very successful. They're doing great work. And we'll be right back to talk about his pioneering work in criminology right after this. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chuck, I feel like in the movie version, that would have been a, a montage that we just discussed. I think uh, Depardieu, it definitely was a montage. Uh, I think Depardieu played him in a movie called Vidoc, but it, was, it wasn't it was like his life story. It was like a lot of uh, mistakes I think movies make. They're just like, hey, let's just talk about this one uh, central crime and plot, and Vidoc is the guy on the case. Okay. That makes sense. It sounds like they were trying to grow a franchise unsuccessfully. Yeah, I guess they did that with the Sherlock Holmes movies. I think I'd just like to see a movie about him, like his real life. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it writes itself. It does. Even if you strip away, like, the legend stuff, it writes itself. He's just that fascinating. So we call them the father of modern criminology, and not just us, guys. Everybody calls him that. Mm -hmm. And the reason why is because he was pioneering all sorts of techniques of criminology. They're still used today. It's amazing. It is. On the one hand, you can be like, this is all low-hanging fruit. Like, he's the first guy doing it. But when you put it all together, 
it's it's it, like he was a sharp dude, and it also shows how zeroed in and focused he was on fighting crime. That this is what he th- thought I don't about. Think it was. I don't think it's low hanging fruit. If like no one else is doing this stuff, right? I think that's a a, a, ret- a retrospective look. Like if I don't know, I think if it was low hanging, people would have been doing it. Okay, you don't. Uh, let, for, let's take ballistics for example. He is credited with with um, doing the first ballistics comparison in the history of um, law enforcement. Yeah. So eighteen twenty two, the the body of Comtesse Isabel Darcy. Uh, was found shot to death. Uh, they arrest the husband. Uh, even back then, it's likely that uh, the husband did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they took his dueling pistol and it's like, this is, you know, the murder weapon. And he was like, it wasn't me. He, She had an Italian lover and I guarantee it was that guy. And Vidoc very simply was like, hey, let's remove that bullet from the skull. They got the bullet out and they were like, you can't put a bullet like that in a dueling pistol. Mm-hmm. And they tracked down the Italian lover. He confessed. And I see why you call it low-hanging fruit because it seems like it makes so much sense Mm -hmm. just to say, well, hey, let's look at the bullet. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if no one else is suggesting it. No, uh, no, for sure. And and even if that if that had been his only, you know, contribution, you know, you would be like, yeah, that's 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 neat or whatever. But I wouldn't call it remarkable. (laughs) It's the fact that he came up with so many different things. Yeah, yeah. And the only reason I call it low-hanging fruit is not to put him down, but because I think that over time somebody would have had the same thought. Right? I agree. They, no one just had. But he was basically standing under the tree, spinning, grabbing all the fruit. Right. That was one of the things that makes him <laughs> remarkable. He was a fruit grabber. Uh-huh. He was grabbing that falling fruit. I got another one. Let's hear it. Footprint analysis? This is a good one. Yeah. Like, we would have no idea that Bigfoot exists if Vidoc hadn't come along and figured out that you can actually make a reverse, a negative of a footprint if you fill the footprint in with par- with plaster, a plaster of Paris appropriately. Yeah. He's like, can I get plaster? And they're like, this is Paris. What are you kidding me? It's everywhere. <laughs> so um, he actually, uh, this was a lead heist. Someone had stolen a bunch of lead. <laughs> and it turned out to be a former police agent. But he, he made a cast of the footprint, compared it to the boot treads of other suspects and found one that matched. And the guy was like, yes, it was me. Vidoc, you found me out. Amazing. Uh, he also, early on in this one, to me, is really remarkable. He, he was like, all right, that footprint thing worked. And he was like, fingerprints, that's got to be a thing. Like, look at these. Look at this. Look at your thumb, everybody. And everyone looked at their thumb. And they'd all had, uh, you know, uh, pastry cream on it. <laughs> and so they licked it off and then looked at their thumb. And they're like, oh, wow. And he said, we could probably use this too. But they just couldn't find like a way to do it. They didn't have the technology yet. They couldn't find an ink that would work and record the fingerprints properly. So that didn't happen. But he had the idea. Yeah. He also, so that ink and the, the forge proof paper, he came up with while he ran a paper mill during one of his down periods between fighting crime. Yeah, I think that was later in life. Wasn't that like a retirement job, or am I wrong about that? It was in between his his um, reign as head of the security brigade and, and his next, next act. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Okay, I got you. So what else? The other thing he did was he was really good. He had a great memory, apparently, and was really good at remembering like the people and the faces of the people of the underworld and their names. And he was like, first thing he did was said, all of you cops should get good at that too, because that really helps if you like go to the prisons and observe the guys in the prison and the exercise yard and like, remember their faces, remember their names. And maybe we should start writing this stuff down and keeping track of criminals actually. Mm -hmm. And they went, oh, we have never done such a thing. And he said, well, start doing it. And that was the beginning of, uh, I mean, it was like a card catalog at the time, but that was the beginning of, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the criminal <laughs> database? Yeah, criminal database. Yeah, or profiling? Uh, sure. But, I mean, it was everything. Like, if you were a forger, they would have a, ha- a sample of your handwriting. Like, it was really detailed. I saw that it had, I think, 30,000 crooks information, but it covered millions of Pages, essentially. That's awesome. Yeah, they were really, like, into it. And then another thing he um, helped establish was essentially the criminal profiling from a psychological standpoint. He wrote a treatise um, called Les Valeurs 
psychologie de leur murs et de Not psychologie, leur... physiology. Oh, okay, let me try that again. <laughs> Les velours, colonne, uh -huh. physiologie de leur murs et de leur langar. Langar. <laughs> langar. I think that's how you say language. But anyway, it means really? thieves. And I added the colon, and he actually used a, a comma. An anatomy yeah, like of their mores and their language. And it was a study of, like, the mind of a thief. And it was uh, evidence-based. Like, it was a scientific paper that he wrote yeah. about the criminal mind. Um, and I think that actually undermines the idea that his memoirs were, like, him just being over the top. Uh, I saw that he had written a manuscript for his memoirs, handed it in. Then after he handed it in, the publisher hired a ghostwriter to punch How it up. How did they guess it up? And that okay. he wasn't super happy about that uh, when he found the the final product, when he read the book. So, oh, he's in fact a humble man? I don't know about that, but I don't in the think <laughs> he was as boastful as he has a reputation for based on his memoirs. Uh, okay. Uh, it, like we mentioned, he was a master of disguise. Uh, as were his men in his uh, in his uh, police force, and they could they could do it all. They were like Monty Python. They would dress up as like we said, nuns and women and uh, old people, young people, uh, thieves, obviously. And it was a time, and it sounds a little nonsensical that thieves would dress and speak in a certain way and wear their hair in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But there's been times in history when that was the case. Like uh, uh, if you look at it, this some of the old gangster. Uh, uh, British gangsters of a time sort of did the same thing. You carry yourself. And I think today even, and you would call it profiling, but, you know, there's there's certain ways of dress to sort of be in the world where crimes are happening. There always has been. Yeah, you wear tracksuits. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I'm wearing a tracksuit right now. Criminal. I would turn you <laughs> uh, in if I were a duck. Uh, but they had their own style, so they would obviously were very good at mimicking that style. And in the memoirs, and this, you know, could have been a ghostwriter because it is very flourishy. <laughs> uh, apparently, he had a habit, uh, very cinematically, of pulling off his mask or his costume uh, at the at the last moment and saying, "It is I, Vidoc," as the shackles are being put on the criminal. Yes, or like Tom Cruise in any Mission Impossible movie. That's right. So, Chuck, I said everybody should remember that he had lots of enemies in the real police, regular police. And they very, they routinely accused him of illegal activity, like planning evidence, accepting bribes and trapping people, kidnapping uh, young women to take them off to uh, convents to become nuns mm -hmm. at their parents' behest. Yeah, I saw that. All of the stuff, these are accusations. None of these things were ever proven. He was never even taken to court for most of them. There were two cases that sullied his reputation that gave the police the chance to really drag him through the mud. One was that one of his agents was accused of helping a group of robbers that he actually busted, that he had taken some money from them for bringing a key so they could break into a place easier. He got two years. It's not clear that that actually did happen, but the guy got two years anyway. And uh, Vidoc had so laid his reputation on the line that not only he could be trusted, but his agents could be trusted too, that he resigned. He was like, that's, that's fine. I'll resign. I'm clearly not meant for this any longer. Like, my reputation has been tarnished, and I'm just going to go off and start a paper mill. Um, he was brought back, and he was the head for another year or something like that. And then he said, you know what? Forget this. I'm going to go out and start my own detective agency, the world's first detective agency, I think um, almost 20 years before the Pinkertons even started. Yeah, I think part of the... I think it was twofold as for the cops. Like, they definitely didn't like that he was outshining them. Mm -hmm. And I think they were always suspicious that he never left his criminal past behind because he lived beyond his means uh, of his salary. Mm -hmm. um, I saw, so I can't remember how much he made as a salary. I think it was like 5,000 francs? francs francs mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, and he lived as a man who had much more money than that. Uh, so he had all kinds of side hustles. He was in real estate. I think he helped run a tavern. And so he made extra money doing other things. And I think they were always suspicious that he was still dabbling in criminality. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing he did that was, I thought, fairly interesting, and um, I'm not sure how illegal it was. There was a thing at the time where you could um, pay somebody to take your place in the army, basically. Mm -hmm. 
if you didn't want to go to the army, you could uh, offer up a substitute. You could pay that substitute, and they were glad to take the money to do that. And what he would do was he would catch a criminal and say, hey, you want to go to prison or you want to go to the army? And if they said, oh, I'd rather go to the army, he would say, here's your substitute. Now give me my money. So whether or not that's actually illegal, who knows? Uh, it, it, it's borderline. <laughs> yeah. And I think stuff like that sort of made the cops that that just added to their ire, I think, because he was making more money than they were. So did that um, did, that definitely happen? That was proven that he did that. That wasn't just an accusation that like turned into I, fact over time. I'm not sure. I read it in a book. Uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like some Internet article. Sure. You know, it was from an, act, an actual book. It was not on YouTube. No, it was it was in a book. Okay, so uh, regardless of this, he has he's founded this new this detective agency again, the first detective agency in the world, and he started out um, basically collaring white collar criminals uh, for large you know corporate um, clients, mm-hmm. people who swindled them, made off with money, embezzled that kind of stuff. And there was one case in particular. Uh, and this was after years, years of this successful detective agency continuing to show up the security brigade. The, his successor's brother ran a bank. And when the bank got knocked over, the brother came to Vidoc, not the head of the security brigade who he was related to. Um, so there was a case where a guy, he had caught a guy who had absconded with money. He brought him into the office for questioning and got the guy, convinced the guy to give up like 2,200 francs to just begin repayment, put it in his account as he normally did to then hand over to the people who'd hired him, less the 45% they promised him for finding, right? That happened. And a week later, the cops show up and arrest him for false imprisonment, impersonating a police officer and um, taking bribes, essentially. And this is where his reputation really got tarnished. Yeah, it was a, by most accounts, it was a setup, like a complete setup. Right. Like he, he, they looked all over to find people who would say in court that he was a crook. They couldn't find anybody, even other criminals. They couldn't find anybody except for this one guy, Kampai, who was the one person who accused him. So he, um, regardless, is convicted, given, I think, like five or six years. And within, apparently, weeks, he, fi- he gets his case in front of the appellate court, who took, like, less than a day to throw the case out, because he'd clearly been railroaded and exonerated him. But his reputation had been so solid, even at the time, his star really fell. Um, and he looked around for somebody to sell the detective, detective agency to, uh, apparently, there were plenty of buyers, but they were like fraudsters just looking to take advantage of people. So he just closed the thing down instead. Amazing. And there's here's another example. So you hear that he got 10 months. Uh, he spent 10 months in jail for that um, crime, right? Impersonating a police officer and all that. He didn't. He spent 10 months in between the time he was accused and the time he was finally brought to trial. And then after that, he was acquitted within weeks of being um, convicted. Does that make sense? Like that kind of detail like matters hundreds of years on. It does. So the cherry on top of this story is that uh, Vidoc left behind a really interesting literary uh, legacy. And uh, not only just the books he wrote, he wrote uh, memoirs, like we said. Uh, He wrote that that crime book, the science book that was so great. Uh, But Victor Hugo, he had friends like this, Victor Hugo and Balzac, uh, one of my favorite names, they use him as inspiration. If you read the book Les Miserables or go see that uh, Broadway show, if you see that awesome movie and uh, and you cry every time Anne Hathaway sings like I do, it's amazing. Because she's good or bad at it. Have you never seen it? No. I saw the oh, it's, stage play. It's great. Or the music. She's I guess. great. They did something different in that musical where they... Uh, they didn't lip sync. They actually recorded them singing oh, uh, in the moment on stage, on the scene, and they had never done that before. Wow. And so it's like palpable and real, and whew, boy, it's good. Uh, I loved it. So Les Mis, though, is is the story about uh, a man who gets put in jail for stealing bread. Mm-hmm. So that might sound familiar mm-hmm. from uh, V-Doc's real life. 
But uh, apparently Hugo actually used both of the characters, uh, Jean Valjean and uh, who's the other guy? Inspector Javert. Javert as inspirations. You know, he was the inspiration for both because he was both uh, criminal and cop later on. Uh, Not only that, but uh, mentioned Balzac. Uh, he cited Vidoc specifically as inspiration for uh, Valtrin, his character. Then, of course, once you see who the character is, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, escape convict and criminal mastermind who uh, repents and becomes a police officer, a minister of police in Italy. Yeah, not bad. So, um, the what's widely believed to be the the mo- the first modern detective novel was The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. And there's an amateur French detective named Dupin. And Poe said that he definitely um, uh, based Dupin on Vidoc. One that's a little less clear, a little less direct, is Sherlock Holmes. Um, there's some some traits between Sherlock Holmes and Vidoc, like Masters of Disguise and like dealing with the criminal underworld for information and all that stuff. But Sherlock Holmes was based on a French detective that came before, Monsieur Lecoq. And Emile Ge- uh, Gaborio, who wrote the books that Lecoq was the protagonist of, definitely modeled Lecoq on Vidoc. So <laughs> Lecoq was uh, based on Vidoc, and Sherlock Holmes was based on Lecoq. So I think by transitive property? Ooh, nice. Is that it? I hope so, man. Math. Mm-hmm. So that's it. What a guy. Yeah, he definitely deserves a a um at least a, a decent movie if not yeah a, a franchise, you know what I mean? Yeah, and can't you find someone besides Gerard Depardieu? I mean, surely. I feel like he was just the guy for so long. I don't, he's he's old now and I think he didn't get me too. I don't know. I know that France kind of was like you stink cuz he moved so we wouldn't have to pay high taxes. Hmm, maybe that's That's what I'm the thinking. last thing I heard of. All right. Oh, there's one other thing. There's a group called the Vidoc Society in Philadelphia that's made up of like criminologists and people in law enforcement who take uh, cold cases on pro bono during their monthly lunches and try to inject new life into the cases. You know, they love that name. For sure. The Vidoc Society. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. And they all come in in disguise and then rip off their masks. They say, it is I. At lunch. That's right. <laughs> Every day. Whew. Well, that's Vidoc for you. If you want to know more about him, there's a lot of interesting, contradictory stuff out there to read. Uh, and since I said contradictory, that means, of course, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, My Way or the Skyway. <laughs> um, that has nothing to do with it. It's just about the Skyway disaster. Right. Uh, we heard from a, a doctor. This is a really good email. Uh, hey, guys, just recently started listening to the show. Found the episode uh, Hyatt Regency Skywalk Disaster very interesting. I'm a physician and was in residency at a hospital in Kansas City, not far from the Crown Center at that time. And I was on call that Friday night and was watching TV with a number of other residents when I heard the news uh, and we knew that we were in for a busy night. Uh, I'm writing in basically to mention two things I thought you might find interesting. Uh, Ironically, the Kansas City metro area had planned for a mass disaster drill the next day. Of course, the drill was canceled, and instead the response to the actual disaster was analyzed, resulting in significant changes for future plans for a response to a mass disaster. Wow. That's incredible. Um, And this one, uh, both of my sons graduated from college with engineering degrees. Uh, A few years ago, uh, they were taught about the Hyatt disaster in their classes, and there are still lessons to be learned from what happened even decades later. And that is from Dr. Paul M. Jost of uh, Kansas City. Thanks a lot, Dr. Jost. That was an amazing email. Like, geez, that's some background right there. Yeah, and hey, way to get on listener mail like as a new listener. That's well done. Yeah, just pat yourself on the back. Take off your lab coat so you have a little extra stretching room and pat yourself on the back. That's right. And also, Doc, I got this shoulder thing going on. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nice. Well, if you want to be like Dr. Jost and send us some really arcane info about an episode that we did, we love to hear that stuff. You can send it to us via email at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people... It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.